So firstly, lament happens in the context of relationship and trust. And secondly, it is not an expression of unbelief. We often hear it that way though, don't we? It sounds like David is doubting his beliefs. But we must keep in mind that, that David is not asking theological questions here, but, but rather he's stating how he feels. He, he's expressing, expressing how he feels to God in questions and how he feels matters. How you feel matters. God's called us to love him with everything, with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, emotion, He calls us to bring our past, our present, our future to him. And the reason why I don't think David is merely asking theological questions of God and looking for answers is that I'm pretty sure David already knows the answers to these questions. In my study this week, I stumbled across Psalm 139, which is really, it's a mirror of Psalm 13. It's a reverse image of Psalm 13. And, and we know that though it's 139 and I'm teaching 13, that the Psalms aren't necessarily ordered chronologically. And, and, and so I want to show the contrast between these two Psalms and really illustrate for you why I think that David already knew the answers, though he was bringing his emotion to God. In Psalm, thir- um, in Psalm 13, David says, will you forget me forever? But in Psalm 139, he says, your thoughts about me are more than the sand of the seashore. In Psalm 13, he says, will you hide your face from me? But in Psalm 139, he says, you have searched me and you know me. In Psalm 13, he talks about sorrow in his heart. But in Psalm 139, he says, my soul knows very well that you knit me together. In Psalm 13, he speaks about how his enemies are exalted over him. And in Psalm 139, he shows confidence that his enemies are God's enemies. I think what's going on here is that David is trying to get his heart to match up with his theology. He's trying to get his heart to match up with his head. And so he's crying out to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. As we honestly cry out to God what's in our hearts, I believe it helps us to, again, gain the right perspective on life. And I think we need to do that, honestly. And if those two reasons aren't enough, that that lament happens in the relationship of context, and secondly, that lament is not a, a, a statement of disbelief or unbelief, thirdly, I would have you to consider Jesus. Jesus, who is our ultimate example of how to lament. Do you guys remember Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26? I want to read this to you. Matthew 26, 37. He says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, father. In Gethsemane, Jesus embodies Psalm 13. He expresses sorrow in his soul, even to death. He he falls on his face crying to the Lord, if there's any other way, please, God, 
I think Jesus also knows the answers when he's crying out to his father. He knew from the foundation of the earth the answers to these questions, and yet he asks them, and he cries out to the Lord what's in his heart, saying, Lord, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, God. But then, just as Psalm 13 ends, Jesus ends with this note of trust that comes at the end of lament, where he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but you you will, Father. And so if Jesus prays to the Father in this way, and if we are to pray to the Father through the Son, then I'm certain that we are to bring our sorrow and our honesty to God also. So David pleads with God by asking hard questions. But but in the next verse, David goes from questioning God to really demanding things of God. It, It almost seems like his tone changes from questioning to almost arcing up and yelling at God. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David's now telling God what to do. Look at me. He's saying to him, look at me. In the first two verses, he's saying, are your thoughts about me? Have you forgotten about me? Have you turned your face from me? And now he's telling God what to do. Look at me, God, I'm talking to you. Consider me. Can David do this? Can he... Tell God what to do. Is this okay? Uh, The key is that he's not simply making demands on God here. Rather, he's holding God to his promises. David is holding God to his promises. He's not just making demands on him. I think we think when we read this that, oh no, David's lost his faith. He's saying these things to God. Uh, when, When actually it takes a lot more faith when times are tough and when you're suffering to run to and cling to the promises of God. And when David said, consider and answer me, David knew God's promise that said, when you call, I will answer. And so he's holding him to it. When David says, light up my eyes, he's claiming the blessing that God had given to his covenant people that said, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. So David's calling his promises. David was holding him to his promises, and we too should call God upon his promises. How do we do that? Well, we need to know his promises. We need to look into the perfect law of the the word of God and and know what he says to us, know how he thinks about us, know what he promises so that we can hold him to his promises. If you look all through the New Testament, Paul holds God to his promises as he prays to him. We can call upon God to uphold his promises in his good timing. So by the end of verse four, David's pleaded with the Lord, he's called upon the Lord, and yet there's been no answer from the Lord. Sometimes we need to descend into the depths of our grief and and experiencing it in all of its agony. And then and only then, can this beautiful trust, this honest trust and praise come out in a genuine way. And so we see David making this turn to trust in verse five and six. But again, 
As I read this, remember the four long verses of lament that preceded it. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He says he will trust in God in the midst of his suffering. You see, we're always talking about, you know, trust and faith and and how it's the appropriate response to the gospel and how we need to trust God. But how does this psalm in particular shed light on what that means for us to trust God? I want to try and dissect that a little bit and and dig into it. In all my years of ministry, and, and I've been in ministry for about 15 years now, I've seen grief and pain in the lives of many people. And, and one of the things I've noticed is when people are suffering and grieving, it's often then that they ask theoretical questions. But they're not really looking for theoretical answers. They're looking for relational answers, though they ask theoretical questions. So when tragedy hits, people often ask, why does God allow suffering? How can God be good? But they really aren't looking for a philosophical answer. I mean, could you imagine in the midst of suffering that God actually came and answered your philosophical question? Well, divine agency is compatible by human freedom because God transcends the created order, although there's concurrence between the two. I'd be like, thanks, Lord. Can you pass me a tissue? We need relational answers. So when people ask these questions, they're looking for a deeper answer. They're not just looking for that theoretical answer. And David is asking God for answers, but by the end of the prayer, he realizes that God is the answer. God is the answer. God does give an answer to the problem of suffering, but it's not a philosophical answer. It's a personal answer. He gives us himself. And he gives us himself ultimately in Jesus by sending his son. That's the answer to all suffering. That's God's answer to the problem of suffering. That's where we place our trust. It's where we look. We look to the cross in the midst of our suffering. And as we look to the cross, we understand the right perspective on suffering in our world. We understand, firstly, that suffering will one day be put to naught. There will be no more suffering. As Arnaldo preached last week, he will dry up every tear. He will clear away all suffering. But also, we look to the cross and we realize that, oh my gosh, I deserved so much more suffering. But Jesus bore your pain. He bore my pain. He bore our suffering. It's when we look to the cross that we're able to answer the question when people say, where is God in the midst of your suffering? Christ understands your suffering. He can empathize with every one of our weaknesses, as it says in Hebrews. See, the key to our struggle as we've been invited in this psalm to struggle with God, and the key to that struggle And struggling well is trusting God. We put our faith in God when we understand the good news of what he's done in Christ. 
Again, we see that Christ not only bore our sin, forgiving us, but he cle- and, and clearing our guilt, but he actually entered into our suffering with us. And he promises that one day he will put an end to it. So we're to trust God in the midst of our suffering. But again, I want to push a little bit further on what this means specifically in light of this passage, because that's generally, again, we look to Jesus, right? But, but I think they're specific. So what do we trust God for in this passage? You remember earlier how we looked at the, the four issues of enemies of suffering or, or of, of struggling against God, the, the four enemies of dejection, desolation, depression, and defeat, I believe it's in these same areas that we need to trust God in the midst of our suffering. And I want to share quickly those four ways. When you're feeling dejected, we can trust in God's love. When you're feeling dejected, that God doesn't care, you can trust in God's love. Do you remember earlier when David was crying out, how long will you forget me forever, Lord? He's saying, does God care about me in my suffering? Does God love me in my suffering? When we're feeling dejected, we can trust that God does love us. The word that David uses here for love, is, it's really a powerful word when he, when he talks about the steadfast love of the Lord in verse 5. The word in the Hebrew is hased, and the word is so rich that our English language can't even come close to capturing it. I mean, the word love has been so flattened out in the English language that I can use the same word for how I love my wife and how I love Mexican food, right? I love my wife, I love Mexican food. It's just the same word across the board. But in Psalm 13, when he says, I've trusted in your steadfast love, the Hebrew word is hased. And it's this type of love that is devoted. It's a love that is unfailing. It's a love which God has bound himself to his special covenant people. He's bound himself to the object of his love. That's hased. He's bound himself to his covenant people. And so a, a Jew could never really say they hased tacos, right? Like, like I say, I love my wife for multiple reasons. But David's saying he trusts in God's hased. He trusts in God's steadfast love. The love with which God has bound himself to his people. That's us. He's bound himself to us. That's the love that God has for us. Just as a mar- in, a, in a wedding, people take a vow to bind themselves to their spouse-to-be, God has espoused us and has bound himself to us for all eternity. And he's placed his spirit within us as a guarantee of the purchased possession which demonstrated his love. And we can be confident in it. And we should be confident in God's love for us. Suffering is never a sign that God doesn't love us. It's rather, uh, it's a reminder of the depths that God went to purchase us in his suffering. Our search for answers will only ever be satisfied by our discovery of God's love that's abounding for us, his steadfast love. The second way we're to trust God specifically in our suffering is when we feel desolate, we're to trust in God's presence. David cried out, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? He's asking God the question in the midst of his suffering. As I said before, 
You know, where are you, God? Are you, are you, do you, you know, how long are you going to let me go through this? But Jesus' name is Emmanuel, isn't it? Which reminds us that God is with us. God is with us in our suffering. We remember that Jesus is the man of sorrow who is acquainted with grief. And that when we suffer, we actually share in his sufferings, as the New Testament tells us. God's not waiting for us on the other side of our, of our suffering. God is with us in our suffering. And my favorite illustration of this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Abednego. They're, they're in this, uh, you know, furnace because they won't bow down to the image of this, you know, this king. And so the king throws them in. And then they peer in and they see a fourth person in there. And it's the appearance of the son of God. God is with them in their suffering. And so when we're suffering and when we feel desolate, we can trust in God's presence. My, my buddy, Britt Merrick, um, just lost recently a couple years ago now. He, he lost a four-year battle with his daughter, Daisy Love. Uh, it, to, it, she had cancer and she passed away to go be with the Lord and uh, in the last year of her life, uh, they took her to Israel for a special treatment. And uh, it was there in Israel that my buddy Britt was there. And he was crying out to God in Mount Hermon. And he's saying, you know, God, why is this happening to me? And his emotion being borne out before the Lord. And, and, and he says that the heavens went silent to him. He said that there was, he could not hear from God. And he just had this sorrow of heart. And he went back home after the special treatment and things continued to not be good for her. It didn't work. And, and uh, Britt's wife came to her, to, to, to Britt and said, Britt, I need you. I can't have you wallowing like this. I'm going to die if you don't get out of this funk that you're in. Like, I actually, I, I cannot survive with you like this. And so Britt tells the story of how he musters up this strength to, to get up the next day and get up and trim this tree that's overhanging his son's skate ramp so his son can skate on the ramp. Just do a chore to help get him out of his despair. And so he gets up on this tree and, and he falls off the tree onto the skate ramp and hits a fence and, and is coughing up blood and has to go to the hospital. And so then he's in the hospital going, God, I just wanted to do a chore. Like, I just wanted to get out and do something. Where are you, God? Why is this happening to me? And it's in that place that he's in the hospital bed and many days pass and he's just crying out to God. And he's reading uh, Matthew chapter 10 that talks about when not one sparrow falls apart from my will. And, and Britt tells a story of where God just met him in a profound way and said, Britt, I, I, you're asking me the wrong press question. I, I, I can't tell you why, but what I can say is that in it, I am with you. I am, I am here with you. Not one sparrow falls apart from my will. I, I'm with you in it. And it brought him extreme comfort in that time. We can trust in God's presence, you guys. The third way that we need to trust God is when we're depressed, we need to trust in God's purposes. And now I want to say that as we talk about depression, I'm not talking about clinical depression, though what I say applies uh, to that, but there's more to be said on that. Uh, but rather, I want to talk about what David is getting at when he speaks about this sorrow of the soul. 
The sorrow of soul, the pain that, we're, that we experience, it's actually a way of telling us that something's wrong. When we experience sorrow or pain, it, it tells us something's wrong. And I want to show you that God does have a purpose in allowing our suffering. You see, physical pain is actually a good thing. When we have physical pain, like when you put your hand on a stove, it sends a sensor to your brain to tell you that you actually need to remove your hand. In some ways, pain is an indicator that something's wrong, that our purposes need to be changed. And in our depression, God wants us to trust him in our purpose. The pain that we experience, the brokenness of this world, it reminds us that things are not as they are supposed to be. And they make us yearn for God's grace and for God's restoring power to put it all back together. What, what sin has undone, it causes us to yearn for that. And so pain lets us know something is wrong. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience and shouts in our pain. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When suffering sits down next to us, uh, and when we ask the question, what is life about? It, it can be a good thing for us. It can cause us actually to trust God and to shave away the things that are no longer good for us. Suffering makes us reevaluate our lives. Sorrow makes us rethink our purpose and our priorities. And fourth and lastly, we need to trust God specifically in light of this psalm is in defeat. We need to trust in God's timing. Now this is, I think, the hardest one, personally. Because we're always asking this question. Even if we believe God's promises, yes, Lord, I see your purposes in my suffering, in my sorrow. I see your presence in my suffering. I see your love in my suffering. But how much longer, God? How much longer do I have to go through this? How do we understand how God works in the midst of it? How do we understand God's wisdom and his timing? And the answer is simply, we don't. Sorry, we don't know his timing. We don't get it oftentimes. And yet God is calling us to trust him, to trust in his sovereignty. You see, maybe we want to know God's timing for the future because we're not willing to trust him in the present. He hasn't promised to give us answers. He's promised to give us himself. And this is God's, uh, and this question of God's timing, I think it's important for us to hash through because I think it's a part of our human nature. Uh, when you were a kid, you probably asked the same questions that my kids ask. Are we there yet? Right? The typical road trip question. Are we there yet? I kid you not, there have been times when I've been in my front yard still, and my in, just getting in the car, and my little guy Jaira has said, are we there yet? And I'm like, no, Jaira, we're not there yet. With a little bit of frustration in my voice, knowing the question's going to come a million more times, no, we're not there yet, Jai. Just trust me. We'll get there, but we're not there yet. I just need you to trust me. And he's like, well, well how long? And so I'm like, all right so that he understands. It's like watching Frozen four times, you know? We're not going to be there. It's like as if you were to watch Frozen four times. So then they're like, yes, we're going to watch Frozen four times. I'm like, no, we're not going to watch Frozen four times. 
So then, you know, we're getting there and I'm just reassuring him always, just trust me, Jaira, just trust me. He, he doesn't have any concept of time. He, he barely can tell the difference between five minutes and nine hours. I just tell him to trust me. And yet, here we are coming to God as a father like a child, and we admit that we have limited knowledge, and, that, and that's obvious to all of us, and yet God is infinitely wise and knowledgeable, and he calls us like children to just trust him, even though we don't fully understand you see, my kids trust me because I see the bigger picture better than they do. I have more wisdom than them right now anyway. I see how it all works together. And so I ask them to trust me. And this is how I think our attitude has to be before the Lord. We just have to trust in his timing. I don't know all the answers. I don't know God's purposes in all of it but I can trust that he is a father who's working all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. Uh, that he's incredibly and eternally wise and knowledgeable in working all things together for good. And, and then we see that verse five and six, that David's trust culminates in praise as we close. Verse five, at the end of verse five, it says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. Here we see that this lament finds its resolution in praise. David rejoices and sings to the Lord in the midst of his suffering. But here's the thing. Remove this last line from the psalm and the entire thing breaks down. How is it in the midst of suffering and brokenness that David can trust God and rejoice in him? He's had so many terrible things happen to him from, from being a boy and then being anointed king and then suffering, waiting to actually be the king. And then once he was the king, he suffered. And then after that, his kid, you know, went AWOL. And I mean, the guy suffered and, you know, he had this issue with Bathsheba. And I mean, David suffered, whether it was self-inflicted or others inflicted. He suffered greatly. So how in the midst of that can he turn around and say that I rejoice in suffering? The answering is because he knows that God has dealt bountifully with him. Do you guys know this morning that God has dealt bountifully with you? Do you know that? What a beautiful truth. In our suffering, God's not withholding from us, but rather he's pouring his love, his presence, his discipline, his grace upon us. And you know, what, you know what, what's interesting is that David's saying all this before the coming of Christ, where we really see the abundance of God's love made manifest for us. Of how much more, you guys, how much more ought we to rejoice in how much God has poured out to us? Of how much more ought to we to rejoice? God has given us his all. He's given us himself a sure sign of suffering as well is that you recognize in the midst of loss that God has dealt bountifully with you. But I think we still need to go through this internal process of grieving and crying out to the Lord. In England, in the 19th century, I just want to share this last story. There was a woman named Charlotte Elliott and she wrote several hymns. 
And Charlotte was uh, an invalid who had a severe illness as a child and spent much of her life bedridden, tormented with pain. And as a young girl, she struggled not only with the idea that she had nothing to offer to the world, but that she had nothing to even offer to God. And so when a preacher visited her and, and brought the gospel, she replied with, what can I give to God? That's not for me. I'm not worthy. But the preacher told her, oh, Charlotte, you should come just as you are. And it was after this, experiencing, this experience that she realized uh, that she could come to God in the midst of her suffering with all of her brokenness and her hands open to receive Jesus that Charlotte penned the hymn, Just As I Am. And, and in this hymn, with all of her emotions on the line, with all of her suffering, I want to read these three verses of this hymn. It says, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And listen to this last third verse, which so powerfully talked of her suffering. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, with many a doubt, fights and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. So often we try and bring something to God, but suffering reminds us that we really can't bring anything to God. I come to you, O Lord, to bring praises from unworthy lips, nothing in my hands to bring. It's only to your cross I cling. It's one of my favorite songs. And yet when we come to God with open hands, it reveals our need for him and for his abounding grace and it causes great praise to then spring forth from the depths of our soul. And so may we like David, may we like Asaph, may we like Charlotte, may we like whoever it is that you've seen suffer in your life and yet cling to Jesus, may we suffer well. May we plead with God well. May we call upon God, trusting him and praising him with real honesty and rawness. God has dealt bountifully with us. Let us trust him. Let us rejoice and worship him together. I'm gonna ask the band to come up now. And, um, you know, at Anchor, we, we, we celebrate the goodness of God and what he's done in Christ for us as we take the communion elements. And so I encourage you to take the bread and to dip it into the juice and reflect on God's suffering on your behalf. Reflect on God's presence in your suffering. Reflect on, on, on his promises for you and call God to his promises. But by all means, lament well to God if your heart is in a place of lament. Don't rush out of that place. Uh, I'll be up here for, uh, up the back with Matt to pray for you. If anyone needs prayer for anything, please come. Let us pray with you. We're the body of Christ. We're to uphold one another. And if you don't want to pray there, grab someone next to you and pray. So let's celebrate as the band leads us in worship and as we come to the communion table. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. And uh, God, we praise you. In the midst of suffering, we can praise you. And we thank you for all uh, that you are, we thank you that you're present with us in our sufferings. 
We thank you that you can take our honest, raw emotions and uh, you're not afraid of those things. You know them anyway. And so God, we wanna be uh, Christians that are honest with you and honest with one another. And so help us with that, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen.